Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. When I was growing up, my sister and I used to fight all the time. I actually was reminded about this just this past week on my birthday. My sister and I were talking about what our childhood was like and how different it is now as adults. And I think she put it really well. As kids, we were always in competition with each other. Just always. All of our interactions were about trying to do one better than the other. And the way that I experienced that at the time was very much that she was just being annoying. And I was just trying to do my thing. But that fundamentally is what started to drive a a wedge between us, was the idea that I needed to be better than her because I knew that I was. (laughs) I was obviously smarter and stronger and uh, just better. HP, I was better in every way. (laughs) And because of that, she was just a little terror that had been sent by God to annoy me. I'm exaggerating, obviously, but as some of the older siblings in the room are celebrating, that is is how it felt for me uh, at the time. It really did, through all of school, and honestly, even into young adulthood, it took some time for us to figure out what those habits were in our interactions that kept us from being in a good relationship with each other. We both wanted to be in a good relationship with each other, but when we, for example, my sister, when we both graduated from college, we were adults, like adult human beings. My sister got a gift of a role-playing game set in the Star Wars universe. Where my nerds at? Yeah. yeah. Uh, And we decided we'd play together. It took five minutes for us to be in a massive argument. Because she was sure I was trying to cheat. And I was sure I was just trying to follow the letter of the rule that she didn't understand. Right? As an adult, that was my opinion. It's so weird how that happens, though. We so easily create these wedges, these barriers to us being able to relate well, and they often stem from a really strong sense of self. You know, for us as kids, we were trying to differentiate, and the way that we could try to differentiate from each other was trying to prove what I was better at and what she was worse at. And she was trying to do the same thing. And so any time we interacted, we were interacting from a place of trying to prove something to each other and not actually about trying to learn about each other. It took until embarrassingly late to be able to have those kinds of earnest conversations. And they started around our shared experiences of our parents and grandparents. So it was those other relationships that helped us sort of get out of our own Heads and our need to be right and our need to get ahead and our need to constantly be in this sort of competitive spirit. It took, it took pivoting our language, pivoting our experience to something else for us to be able to get to anything healthy again. And I've noticed that 
and myself as a tendency in a lot of interactions that I've had to be really mindful of. And maybe some of y'all will resonate with this, but whenever I go into a conversation with someone that I know I fundamentally disagree about something, call it politics or, you know, if you want to be like super nerdy, like which which uh, atonement theology is the correct theology of atonement. Like, if I know that we disagree, oh man, my heels are locked into the ground. I'm so sure that I am smarter than you because what you believe fundamentally is just wrong, period. So I go into those conversations prepared to prove you wrong. Anybody else resonate with this? And then if we can't prove them wrong, what do we do? Well, there's just no hope for them. I need to separate myself. I need to step back. This relationship has become toxic. Too close. <laughs> A little too close. I got it. But you see how easy that is? Like, the toxicity is about the way that we're relating, not necessarily about the opposing viewpoint. And that seems to be the way that our culture just interacts with each other on the base level. We have our fundamental opinions that were handed to us at some point, either by family or friends, or by our own experiences of life. And then we take those experiences and interact with people who are different from us. And rather than coming with any sense of curiosity, we come with an immediate sense of, of judgment, an immediate sense of clarity about myself, an immediate posture of defensiveness, and it makes relating to one another nearly impossible. So I want to read some scripture because I think it's important. But What's been on my mind over the last week, in part because so many of y'all asked me to really dive into this, is the covenant. So over the last couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking and have been talking about our Methodist roots. And last week we talked about why we are called Methodists, the fact that we have methods to our faith, that there are practices that are inherent to who we are. And fundamental, the most fundamental part of those practices that we participate in is the idea that we need to learn how to share vulnerably with one another, to confess honestly and openly with one another, so that we can grow through these, uh, these, these kinds of experiences to become more compassionate, more merciful, so that we can take on the, uh, the fruits of the Spirit a little bit more uh, consistently, that we are loving, joyful, faithful, you know, all these things. And one of the phrases that I said that John Wesley made as one of the only requirements to join in a society of Methodists was a desire to flee from the wrath to come. Praise God. How many people immediately got uncomfortable with that phrase? Yeah. A desire to flee from the wrath to come. So I want to talk a little bit about what exactly we mean when we say that we have a desire to flee from the wrath to come. And what that means is we're about to talk about sin, everybody's favorite word. And we're going to talk about what it means to live together in community. Please don't walk out. <laughs> 
So this is from the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. At one time, you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong and your offenses to God. You used to act like most people in our world do. You followed a rule of destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace, and God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you all pray with me? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. So that whether it's because of me or even in spite, it would be your name that is glorified and your word that is faithfully proclaimed. Amen. So in order to unite a Methodist society in the 18th century, you had to have a desire to flee from the wrath to come. That language is really heavy. And it's heavy on purpose. Now, John Wesley did not have a concept of God that was consistently angry. In fact, he often argued with folks who were in line with like John Calvin's theology and things like this all the time. He saw God as wholly benevolent. God is, a, to put it in like therapeutic language now, God is bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind. And so if that God truly exists as a all-loving, all-gracious, all-good, all-merciful God, and we experience incredible torment through the ways that we interact with one another, the way that the world interacts with us, the way that this experience of life can be so inherently painful, what makes how does that gap exist? And so as Wesley stood in the center of that gap, he started learning and reading from other people who were trying to fill that gap too. Some folks were saying that, you know, the God's depiction and much of scripture is angry and wrathful and has a lot of desire for humanity to do well. And when humanity doesn't do well, uh, God sends, you know, the other part of the story that John talked about, where, you know, a flood comes, right, to wipe out all of humanity. So that must be the case that God is so devoted to the perfect picture of what humanity can be that he would be willing to destroy it for its own sake. John Wesley did exactly that. It's like, no, 
that doesn't jive with the God that I know and my experience of Christ. And so on the other end of the spectrum, you have this idea of a if, if God is all perfect and our experience of life is really painful, then there must be some uh, malevolent force in equal opposition to God. So that's where we get the concept of not just like Hasatan, like the, the accuser, the adversary that exists in scripture, but something a little bit more intense. The depiction of like the devil is sort of on the other end of that spectrum. And so what John Wesley saw was this idea that God is all good, all benevolent. There is the experience of suffering. There's no way that there could be an, a power equal to God. So how do we deal with this tension? And so John Wesley and good Methodists following in his theology started to piece together a, it seems complicated, but it really is very simple idea that God can show up for us even in the midst of our experiences of hardship in order to point towards another way. And fundamentally at the root of why bad things happen to good people why we experience things like these natural disasters that we've been seeing on the news that aren't related to climate change. You know, I think we can take some good human credit for some of the larger storms that have been showing up. But for things like destruction in Maui, what do we do with a volcano that just happens to exist in the world? How do we, how do we wrestle with that? And John Wesley puts those things in the category of mystery but puts most of our human experiences between one another in the category, and this is stealing someone else's language, but of fundamental self-centeredness. The reason tensions exist between us, the reasons that wars can happen, the reasons we can justify violence between human and human is when we start Focusing so much on my need to be right, my need to be smarter, my need to prove myself to be stronger than everybody around me, that allows us to start justifying things that we would never justify otherwise. And these ways of inter interacting with each other are habits that need to be broken. The problem is, these habits are not habits that we can break ourselves. It takes a lot of work to become introspective, and it takes a lot of work to separate our identity from our sense of ego. And so, one of my favorite authors, Richard Rohr, in this same line, he said really beautifully in an interview I saw recently, where he said, um, Someone asked, Richard Rohr leads meditation, contemplative prayer practices, and he ends up having a lot of folks who interact with him who are not Christian. And what they always say is, like, these meditation practices are great. I don't really know why I need to believe in Jesus for any of it. And what he always says is, I have never been able to cleanse one unhealthy thought from my life without calling on the name of Jesus to help cleanse it. Last week, another gift that came to me was the number of people in this room who are actively a part of 12-step programs. 
Y'all, if you are in recovery, you are not alone. But one of the fundamental pieces of that process is recognizing that in many ways you do not have control in the way that you think you do over your life, over the decisions you make, over the ways that you um, do or don't do the things that you want to do. All of this is held in tension with the fact that there that we need to call on a higher power, learn to be confessional in our lives so that we can be honest about where we are, honest about what needs to transform within us, and honest about where our dependence lies. See, so a life of faith isn't about learning how to get the theology correct in order to fix somebody else's mistaken belief about God. It's about learning how to trust in a God who is so good, so kind, so merciful, so present, that God would love even me, even you. Despite whatever horrible habits you may have, despite whatever addictions might help keep you captive, whether they be chemical or otherwise, whatever keeps you from being fully you, God continues to love you through it. And so the tensions that we experience in our walk of faith, the experience of sin that we all have, and the desire to flee from a wrath to come, isn't about God's anger, about God's judgment, forcing us into some sort of eternal torture. It's about the experience of eternal torture that we feel ourselves when we actively or passively walk away from what goodness could exist in our lives if God were leading it. Because I am competitive. I am snarky. I get frustrated really easily. I don't like talking with people who disagree with me for very long. It makes my stomach hurt. <laughs> and so if it weren't for God, and God's call on my life to learn curiosity rather than judgment, I would be continuing to debate with my sister about stupid rules and a stupid game that we were just trying to play to have fun together. That's a habit that doesn't need to exist. But it takes me stepping out of myself and my self-centered worlds in order to step into that. That's what it means to be faithful. It means to trust that Christ, that God, that this vision of a world that is loving and merciful and kind and compassionate might actually have a place to reign, not just out there with me helping lead the charge, but in here with me getting out of the way. I'd love to talk about the like complicated jargon of all of this, 
prevenient and justifying and sanctifying grace and what that means for our uh, experiences of new life. I would love to talk about that if you want to, but fundamentally, the point is this. Even, even if you feel like God is so far from you, that you feel stuck in your own addictive behavior, in your own habits that you just cannot get out of, in your own sense of needing to be right, if you find yourself constantly at tension with everything in the world, God is already actively working in your life. He's already working to embrace you. All it takes is to pivot your attention away from yourself to focus on the one who is always bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind, to help see with some perspective what needs to be cleansed and how you might live compassionately with your neighbor. That is our whole work of faith, to turn our attention from me back to God and to allow that vision of a compassionate world to guide my life rather than insisting it guide yours. You see the difference there? So my prayer is that we can make this walk together, learning to live confessionally, honestly, learning that we don't need to put on airs. We can actually just be real people living life, trusting that God will create a path where mountains are brought low and valleys lifted up so the path might be straight to a kingdom that we have no conception of. May it be so. Amen. join me in this prayer of confession. God of mercy, we confess that we have not loved our neighbors the ways in which you call us. We have not been bold in our advocacy and have not always looked for ways to include those in our community who are marginalized, oppressed, and underrepresented. We confess the times that we've chosen comfort over justice we offer our sincerest apology to those who have not been able to participate fully 
in the life of the church and commit ourselves to living into our mission as a radically inclusive community. Please show us how to be a community of people committed to demonstrating your reconciling love to all. Amen. Hear this good news. Jesus shared our flesh and our blood, our life and death in Christ. God destroys the power of death and frees us from the fear and the sin that bind us. So, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. As we prepare to receive this morning's offering, I invite you to join me in prayer over these gifts. God, we thank you. We thank you for the lives that we have. We thank you for the neighbors who sit at our sides, whether we know them or not. May our relationships in this place and beyond this place deepen so that we might learn your abundant love for all people, including me and including all of them that I hold at such distance. God, as we turn over what we have into your hands, we offer finances, we offer our attention, we offer our lives, trusting that you will work in them and through them to multiply your kingdom, your kingdom of compassion, of grace, of mercy. As we let go of what we have, help us to trust in who you are through Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org. 